Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode where I'm continuing along our journey, deep diving into anxiety. Today, I'm still talking about how we can make our brain more resistant to anxiety and specifically through fear extinction. Before I jump into that, I do need to talk about fear learning first, because when we experience a situation that triggers fear, we learn to associate that fear with the context and the conditions around it. This is really important for us to understand. Um, because it is a survival mechanism. That whole process helped us survive to get to where we are today. In caveman days, if we saw danger, you know, maybe we we're going to a certain watering hole and there were danger, dangerous animals, predators there, you know, at dusk. We learned really fast to not go back to that watering hole at dusk, right? We might go check it out a few more times, but if we see that pattern, we really start to be cautious around other watering holes as well. So we were cautious around that one, especially at certain times, maybe that one completely at any time, but then we start you know, being more careful, especially if something happened that was traumatizing at a watering hole. So our amygdala takes in that information and it lays down a memory for us to use later. Because remember that hippocampus is right next to the amygdala. So something happens, it takes all that information, lays down a memory so that we remember it so that we can be safe in the future. And as part of that process, the dopamine is triggered. So that dopamine is important to help solidify that memory and that dopamine reinforces our behavior. So in this case, maybe it's to run away, to make sure that we we're safe. So our brain is like, we need to do that again, because that's what made us survive. You know, putting your hand on a fire, you immediately pull it away. Dopamine's now firing to say, yes, definitely pull your hand away if there's something hot. <laughs> Dopamine, it's so important for reward learning and for motivation. We've, we've talked a lot about dopamine. You probably have heard a lot about dopamine. It's just it's our motivation, right? To do anything. But it's really important when we're talking about anxiety. It's what drives behaviors. A very easy example is eating a piece of cake. Maybe we've had a stressful day. We eat a piece of cake. Our dopamine kicks in and it tells our brain, this is awesome. And that's also a survival mechanism because back in caveman days when food was scarce, anything sweet and anything fatty, the brain was like, this is awesome because it meant we were going to survive. And so we would always look for more sweet, fatty things. It's a problem now in today's society where food isn't scarce, but our brain hasn't changed in, you know, 10,000 years. And so we are still thinking this is awesome when we eat some cake. And so then it increases that likelihood that we're going to eat a cake again in the future. And if we've created this habit of stress, cake feel better, we start to create this loop, this habit loop, and we get temporary relief, even though it's only temporary, that's enough because it kicks in that dopamine. It's laying down that memory and teaching the brain, Hey, avoiding stuff over here feels good. And eating this cake when I'm stressed feels good. Even though it's only temporary, our brain doesn't want to see that it's only temporary, but in that moment, it's enough to increase the likelihood that that's going to happen again. So if we're worried about school, if we're feeling sick, you know, we want to stay home and we get to stay home because now mom's like, oh my gosh, you're sick. You shouldn't go to school. Now it's nice and cozy and it's safe. Major rewards are happening in the brain. 
or like my little guy, I think I've talked about him before, you know, I was doing an assessment and little guy came in from recess and I said, Kate, now we're going to do some writing. And he's like, Oh no, I'm anxious when I have to write. So when I'm anxious, I get to go sit with the secretary. Like, dude, you just came in from recess. You don't need to go sit with the secretary. We're going to do some writing. Of course, he's going to feel fantastic being with a secretary who's got a sucker in a drawer, nice little cozy seat for him. He doesn't have to write. So we're reinforcing that behavior because the brain is, you know, getting this big reward of, hey, sugar, someone I love, get to avoid the uncomfortable thing we create this anxiety loop. And so that's why we fall into a lot of those traps that I've talked about in previous episodes too. So we know from an evolutionary standpoint, we, you know, we had to cope with threats in our environment to survive, but in today's society, this fear learning, it can be hugely problematic before it was for survival. Now it's actually killing us. So I shared an example in a previous episode where my daughter had had a bad dentist visit. So it wasn't just the dentist that she became fearful of. And it wasn't just if she had to get you know, it, it initially was she had to get a tooth pulled. And so it was the needle and then the tooth pulling, but then it became the dentist and the chair and his whole office. And then the whole neighborhood, this is fear learning where our kids learn to be scared or worried about things. And it's not usually just the one thing. It's all of the information and all of the context around it. And if she, you know, we happen to have been playing a particular song the first day, she had a really bad experience with the dentist or right after. Now that song could be part of that fear context. So these fear responses, they're very reflexive, meaning we have no control over it. It just happens automatically. But we do have these neural networks that help us determine if the threat is actually a threat or totally irrelevant. And so I was kind of talking about that last time, our prefrontal cortex, it's, its job really is to say, wait a second, amygdala, this neighborhood, this McDonald's that happens to be next to the dentist has nothing to do with the dentist. It's safe. Right. So the neighborhood of where the dentist is, is totally irrelevant. Our brain should be able to pick up on that. But for our anxious kiddos, those anxiety disorders, I mean, really anxiety disorders, if we look at them, they're developed and maintained because that brain network responsible to help us manage anxiety and to extinguish that fear, even just emotion regulation in general, that part of the brain, it's not working. And that's why anxiety disorders develop because that part of the brain isn't working. And so that's why they have such big emotions and big reactions to the smallest of things. And they can't think rationally later. They probably can, but not when they're is taken over. So we really need to understand that brain to get to the heart of anxiety. And so that's why I went over the brain several episodes ago around, you know, 15 episodes, 15 through 18 is when I went through the brain. And so that's why it's really important to understand the brain, to know what's going on. Um, I just want to talk about one more piece of fear learning too. When a kiddo is faced with something scary, all the sensory input is combined together to form one single context. And that's associated with fear and those memories are laid down. So even though all of this information is being taken in, it's forming one context, fear-based context. So that includes everything that's happening in the environment, but also everything that's happening internally, like in the body. And there's likely things that we're not even aware of right? Like I said, it, it could be music faintly playing in the background. It could be the smell of something in the air, 
you know, it could be anything. And so that's why fear learning, it generalizes so quickly because so many pieces of information are brought together and combined together. And so it can be really tricky to pull it out. That's why we don't ask why, who knows why there's so many pieces of information that were combined together to create that fear. So, you know, this is contextual fear learning and it's so automatic and, and only one experience is enough to really entrench that learning, unfortunately. So it becomes really hard to disentangle and it makes everything so irrational because there's no direct cause and effect. The brain just works in funny ways like that. So although fear learning happens so quickly and it's generalized so easily, our brains are amazing and they can be changed. And so that's what we're talking about in this little section, this, you know, different parts that I'm talking about rewiring the brain. So we want to ensure that we're addressing that underlying dysfunction in the brain that leads to anxiety, right? So it's that prefrontal cortex, getting it back online faster, making it less startled so it can really take in all the information and make a rational judgment about what's going on. Not through talking, not through trying to think our way calm. That's not going to work. We have to change our brain pathways through neuron activity and the way we do that through, you know, change the neuron activity and change those brain pathways is through fear extinction. So fear extinction, that allows us to control and to stop all of those, you know, startled fear responses that can lead to anxiety. So some, you know, we'll, we'll refer to fear extinction as unlearning anxiety, but I, I don't really like that. I do talk about it. We're still looking, you know, at, at better language, but essentially it's just important to know we don't really unlearn. We just respond in more helpful ways to anxiety because we can't, our brain doesn't work in subtraction. It only works in addition. So we have to learn new stories. We learn that we are safe and that our fear response will fade away because we are learning those new stories, those new associations with our worries. And so they counteract the old anxiety association. So like, for example, for me, dogs are dangerous. I'm still a little bit hesitant when I see a German shepherd, especially running wild towards me barking, or even just any dog barking, running towards me, I still have a little fear, right? So I haven't unlearned that, but I've got lots of new stories to tell me, oh, if he's running towards me with his tongue hanging out and his tail wagging, he wants to play. He wants to say hello, right? So I'm learning new things to help my, so my prefrontal cortex can be like, whoa, wait a second, amygdala, I'm actually safe. This dog just wants to come play with me. That's really important. When we look back in history, it was Pavlov who really first described extinction. And, and he was talking about, well, if you, if you know him, he had so many famous experiments, which he trained dogs to associate a bell with a good reward. Um, and so he would literally, you know, ring a bell and then food would be there right away. And dogs would be you know, just watering at the mouth because they want this food. So they learn the association that bell means food. And soon, even without any food, they started to salivate just by hearing that bell. But they can also unlearn that association as well. But learning it, like I said, just having the bell was enough. They don't need to see it. They don't, don't need to smell the food or anything. Just hearing that bell was enough. But the association, it's not permanent. And they did eventually stop responding. So their response was extinguished. It became extinct once he stopped presenting the food with the bell. 
so they were able in that situation to realize, hey, so it's not so much unlearning the association to realize, hey, the bell isn't necessarily what caused the food, for example. So when we look at fear extinction, this is an active process. So it's really involving activity in that prefrontal cortex, which remember is responsible for telling the amygdala to calm down. It's not a big deal. It decreases that fear response and it regulates the amygdala's activity. That's the job of the prefrontal cortex. Now, in a previous episode, I talked about how fear unlearning is a lot harder than fear learning. So it does take time because remember, fear learning takes all of that information, lots of different pieces of information, brings it together and generalizes very fast. Whereas to unlearn it, you know, with little Albert, for example, he had to unlearn every single thing that he became scared of, even though it only took one thing for him to be scared of everything. (laughs) So I do want to say it's not actually, like I said, unlearning because our brain works in addition. So we're not erasing it. We're not getting rid of the original memory, the fear memory, you know, it's just about new learning. And so with new learning, I can learn dogs are pretty safe. They're pretty cool. We know anxiety doesn't get better on its own and kids don't simply outgrow anxiety. And that's because that amygdala lays down these emotional memories that are extremely powerful and they're very, very long lasting. Those memories can become so entrenched and become so easily activated that they're almost resistant to becoming forgotten. And unfortunately, you know, if we keep worrying, we're releasing cortisol and we know chronic cortisol that can damage the brain, right? And especially the brain cells in the areas that support learning. And so that means that that, that memory piece, memory formation is affected. So it's harder to learn new memories and new stories. And so our anxious children, they tend to engage in anxious behaviors that impair their ability to learn. And that's just making anxiety stronger and stronger. So we know that fear learning, it can happen really easily. And at a very young age, I mean, I was a baby when I was bit by a dog and I learned very fast that dogs are dangerous. So that early fear learning, it can have a major impact on the physical and mental well-being of children. So understanding this unlearning process is really important, uh, just so that we know early intervention is important. We don't want to wait. They don't out, um, outgrow it. We know anxiety actually gets worse over time. Now, I also talked about how unlearning fear is fundamentally different process from fear learning. And like I said, it takes way more time, way more effort to unlearn those worries than to learn them in the first place. But Let's dig into that because we can still rewire the brain. Our brain is amazing. It can be rewired um, so that it loosens its hold on those worries and we can strengthen the prefrontal cortex. Now, I did talk last week about how we can start engaging in the unlearning process. I keep talking at unlearning, but it's the fear extinction through mindfulness. By being fully present, our prefrontal cortex has the opportunity to see the full situation for what it is and stay online to learn and say, hey, Anxiety is not helping me in the moment. Me freaking out is not helping me. Me avoiding this situation is not helping me. Me eating this whole bag of cookies is not helping me. (laughs) And I'm going to talk more about that in the future, but that's essentially where mindfulness comes in, right? But today I want to shift. I already talked a little bit about mindfulness. I really want to talk more about the extinction learning. So learning new 
stories that are going to counteract that negative fear response to specific stimuli. So it could be animals or spiders or heights or social situations. Here we need to show our brain that these scary things are manageable. And there are different things. And I will talk in future episodes just about things that maybe aren't so tangible. It's just fears of the future or jinxing or, you know, things that we don't have any control over, or even just feelings in our body. We might not even have specific thoughts. So I will talk about that in future, but for right now, we're talking about those kind of tangible things and even untangible, but things like, you know, monsters under the bed, for example. So this is really where we get into exposure therapy, where the focus is on learning new things. We're reappraising the situation. So children are exposed to their fears. So being left alone in the dark, for example, until that fear response is loosening its hold and the prefrontal cortex can be like, whoa, 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 not a big deal. So for exposure to work, the amygdala has to be activated for learning to occur. That's so important. And I think it's a piece that a trap that we maybe fall into because we want kids to feel good. We don't want them to feel anxious, especially if we're professionals working with them. We don't want to make them more anxious. We want them to feel better. But the problem is if they're feeling good and the amygdala is not activated, there's no rewiring the brain. It's got to be turned on to be able to do anything. That amygdala, it learns through anxiety. And so for the brain to form new memories and, and to learn safety, you know, we are safe, dogs are safe, the world is safe. Obviously that part of the brain needs to be awake. And so that's the amygdala. It needs to be awake to be able to learn that new story. So therefore there's gotta be some anxiety. Kids have gotta get uncomfortable. They need to feel anxious. It's really important that they understand that. Because, and why? Because there's been times where, you know, we're doing something. And I remember in my early days, I would do some exposure therapy. And then I'd be like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. Do you know why we're doing this? And they're like, because you're mean. <laughs> no, or parents, like I coach parents to do it. And then the kids are like, why are you being so mean? And they just think everybody's mean and the world isn't more unsafe. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not going to rewire the brain if that's happening. So it's really important that they understand why they got to be anxious. We got to have that little guy in your brain awake so that he knows to be able to learn. If, just think if you're in a classroom sleeping, would you be able to learn? the math that the teacher's trying to teach you? No, there's no way learning's happening. So it's really important that they understand that. For them to learn it, it has to be awake. And so when we feel uncomfortable, that's fantastic. We can already say this is a new way to change our, how we are reacting to that anxiety. We can be like, yes, that means I've got the amygdala's full attention. It is watching it is alert. This is a great opportunity to rewire my brain. So just instilling that is almost half the battle because we're changing that reactive sort of response to be like, yes, opportunity to work on this. And for you as the adult, yes, great opportunity for, for me to work on this with this kiddo. That's what we need, right? To have the amygdala's full attention. The only way we're going to have the amygdala's full attention is when we're feeling anxious. And so they need to understand that, you know, the more likely that they're, they're, they're feeling anxious, that amygdala is going to be more engaged. 
right? And they're going to be more motivated to do the work. If they just think that you're being mean and they don't understand why we're doing this, they're not going to want to themselves anyways, right? It's just going to be a bad experience. But knowing that this discomfort they feel, that means they're going to learn something new. They're going to make new connections in the brain. They're going to, you know, become stronger masters over anxiety. That's the whole point of this. So being mindful of what thoughts and feelings are coming up. So staying in the body, that's really important. And I hope that that's something that you've been working working on over this past week, lots of little moments staying in the body, that's going to be important so they can stay grounded and also make sure that their brain is getting all of the information that it's, it needs, because that's when anxiety starts. It's when we close the brain off to any information and the amygdala takes over, fills in all of those gaps with a conspiracy story. So by being mindful, the brain's getting all of that information to learn. This isn't a big deal. I'm actually safe. We're consciously teaching the brain that our initial predictions were wrong. And so by violating those previously held expectations, those first predictions, that's how we're going to change the brain and our behavior. So it's also important when we're looking at this to realize that it's not very rewarding to run away or to have a major freak out or to, you know, hold my fingers behind my back. It's actually not very helpful. They got to realize that's not helping them manage their anxiety. And they know that because the next time the situation comes up, they're still feeling anxious. So if they're doing all of those things, and actually oftentimes kids afterwards feel remorse. I'm so sorry. I freaked out. I feel so bad that I said those things or, oh man, I'm such a baby. Why could everybody else do it? And I freaked out, right? Afterwards, they see that that, that, that anxiety or those behaviors didn't actually help them. Just in the moment, they're caught, they're blinded and sucked into that cult to think that that it's going to help them. So, you know, it's just realizing that's actually making anxiety stronger by doing those things. So knowing exactly what's happening in the brain, what's happening in the body, that's really important to help with learning. Of course, you feel like you're going to have a heart attack, kiddo. That makes sense. Because this is what your body's trying to do to protect yourself. That makes sense. If you think that this is going to be so embarrassing, everybody's going to laugh at you and you're going to have no friends. Dude, that makes sense. Because if you were a caveman who didn't have any friends, probably wouldn't last very long. So of course you feel that way. So providing those explanations for those anxious feelings, of course you feel that way. It really helps normalize it. And, and, and they realize that all that mystery is gone because I know exactly what's happening for me. Now, a key part of all of this, it's not just about learning those new stories like dogs are safe, but we also want to make sure we're activating that dopamine system. And then remember the dopamine is the motivation. That's a key ingredient to teaching our brain because it helps the dopamine helps lay down those new memories. It helps with learning and it helps to really reinforce, Hey, It's good not to avoid in the moment. It's good for me to stick my neck out there and try something new. This is better than expected. I'm learning something. That's really important. So we know that that activity of the dopamine that really represents, you know, the the, the more activity, right? The degree to which the outcomes are better or worse than expected. So what I mean is lots of dopamine. We've got lots of those neurons with dopamine. It's increasing their firing to rewards that are either unexpected or better than expected. And that's, what's going to drive reinforcement learning. And you've probably had this experience where you had a really difficult situation. Maybe it was a hard conversation that you had to have with someone. You feel like, 
you can't talk. You're going to throw up. There's pressure on your chest. It just feels awful. But when you go and have the conversation, you feel so much better and lighter and closer and connected with the other person. Not always, but we usually feel better afterwards. I'm sure you have experiences. So we want to draw on that for, for kids, right? The first time there are no, 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 no. It's too scary, scary, scary. And then they're like, yes, I did it. It was the best thing ever, right? Those are the experiences that we want to tap on and, and, and getting them to see the difference of no, 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 no. That contraction. No, no, no. Yes, I did it. And then the expansion. So being able to recognize those different feelings. So physiologically, internally, but even our body language, all of those things. And that's why I talked about a couple of episodes ago, that awareness is really helpful. So it's really critical that kids can see this discrepancy between what they expected to happen and what actually happened for any new learning to happen. So that brain stops predicting danger all the time because that's essentially what it's always doing. It's just going to always predict danger. It's those conspiracy stories. So that previous association, so between a threat and its predictor, it's no longer valid. So dogs are dangerous and are going to rip my face off. The more exposure I have to dogs and really safe, and I'm purposely teaching my brain. It's not that I'm just going to go and expose kids to dogs and they're freaking out the whole time. You know, it doesn't matter if they're there hundred million hours. <laughs> if they're not consciously learning that that association is no longer valid, no learning is going to happen. So they need to consciously see that there's no association there. And we also need to make sure kids are consciously recognizing that this new way of being, this new way of responding, this new way of behaving, expansion, going towards, bring it, I'm up for it. Yes, this discomfort is awesome. I'm going to rewire my brain. It's actually pretty good. It's better than expected. And look at how good I feel. So being able, that's another reason why the mindfulness piece is important, tapping into this feels fantastic. This feels good. I feel so much lighter. We want to tap into those good feelings too, to show the brain, see, you are making me feel so uncomfortable, but look at how great I feel now. So our brain, it learns based on those rewards. And so we have to make sure the rewards are being known in the first place, right? It's like, Yes, you got your chocolate bar. You're so excited, but then you're stressed and you open it up and you eat it all in one bite and you didn't even enjoy it. You're not consciously aware of any of that, right? So we've got to make sure that any new experiences, it's a rewarding one that they're consciously aware of. They're consciously drawing their attention to those rewards. Look at how good it feels in my body, that relief, that release. So we can really speed up the process by associating that previously scary situation with a positive experience. So they're more likely to engage in the adaptive behaviors again. So that's why that dopamine signal, it's got to be activated for new learning to occur. So we've got to be consciously aware and we've got to have that dopamine firing. And the faster that we do that and the more dopamine we've got, the faster we're going to reduce that fear response. This is called counter conditioning. So when our brains are realizing our old way of reacting isn't actually helping, it's not really rewarding, right? And we learn a new response, our original fear memory, it's sort of buried away, right? It's just that our normal fear response, it's weakened over time because 
we're integrating new memories. We're layering new memories over top. And these new memories, when it's done right, they become stronger and stronger. And they're able to suppress those old fear memories from being automatically you know, brought to the surface. So we don't necessarily unlearn or erase that fear response, like I've talked about already. But, you know, there is some evidence we are finding. I mean, we're always finding out more and more about the brain. We're always going to continue learning. There is some evidence that erasure can potentially happen over time with targeted practice. Um, so I think that that's actually helpful to know. It is way harder as kids get older. Another reason for um, early intervention, because if we can get kids early enough, we can erase some of those previous memories. Um, and actually there's more and more evidence too. now that I'm on this, we know fear memories, they might not necessarily be erased for adults, but we might be able to unlearn them and erase them when we target children and the younger that they are, you know, that's another reason why we want to look at that early intervention, but we still see relapse. And especially with our teens and our adults, especially because that fear extinction, it's so contextually based. So if someone finds themselves in a new situation, the old way of responding kicking in. So for example, with little Albert, he was initially conditioned to be scared of a white rat, but it generalized so quickly that fear learning. So it wasn't just the white rat that he was scared of. He quickly became scared of Santa masks, cotton balls, fur coats, right? Anything fluffy, even though he was never specifically taught those things, his brain, I just keep using that because it's a good consistent example for us to be able to use. So he had to unlearn every single thing, but maybe there was something we didn't realize, maybe a crumped up tissue. And now all of a sudden he's relapsing because he didn't unlearn that. So it can really kick in again. Right. And so we got to think about that. And over time, if we're not maintaining our fear extinction muscle, those old ways will start to creep back in. So that makes sense, right? That, that we can't get rid of our fear response just to case there's real danger. We still need to have it. And so that's why we're not really unlearning. But I think that that's important to remember. Yes, relapse can still happen. So even though if a kiddo is doing good, we got to keep working at it. We got to keep it's just like a muscle. You can't just build muscle get to, you know, go and do your show competition and then never work out again. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. So that's why the mindfulness piece is so important because when we're mindful, it doesn't matter what context we find ourselves in. We can fall back into our bodies. We can remain present. We can take in all of the relevant information and then we can really process rationally. Should I be worried? Should I be anxious? Is this an emergency? So it's important to continue practicing that mindfulness all the time. So we don't revert back to old habits. So we don't necessarily always need to be exposed to things, but I got to say having two dogs is really helpful for me to stay in the habit of knowing that dogs are more buttheads than evil and demons who are going to rip my face off. So you know, I think that those are pieces, but with mindfulness, it doesn't matter where you are, what the situation is. You can always fall back to that. Now to maximize that exposure effectiveness, we really want to ensure that we're violating all of those expected outcomes as much as we can. So, you know, making that learning very conscious, it's very explicit, you know, and we're looking at, did your feared outcome happen? We want to see if there was a discrepancy. And here's the thing, even if their worst case scenario did happen, 
the final outcome is they still survived. Mostly, you know, I had a little guy who's scared of getting yelled at, and maybe he got yelled at, but it wasn't just getting yelled at. There was some deeper outcome that he was really scared of. You know, monsters, it's not just a monster grabbing, it's monster eating us and we die. It's usually way more fatal, way more severe than just getting yelled at or just getting grabbed. And so we really got to figure out what would happen if that happened? What would happen if that would happen? Digging deeper, digging deeper, digging deeper, because that's when we can say, okay, yeah, you got yelled. Yeah, you peed your pants. Yeah, you got made fun of. Sure, those bad things happened. But did the ultimate outcome, did you survive? So we're consciously being aware I survived. It sucked, but I'm still here to live another day. The world didn't crumble in on itself, right? So making sure that we're violating those outcomes very consciously, very explicitly. We also want to increase variability of the exposure. So rather than graded hierarchies or fear ladders, we, we're going to maybe start at the top. Their most scariest thing. We're going to use lots of different contexts. We're going to remove any safety behaviors. We're going to combine fear cues. So maybe I'm terrified of the dark and dogs and snakes. I don't know. We, whatever we worry about, here's the thing, if we're going to combine them all. So, you know, with those three things, maybe it's locking me in a dark room with a dog and a snake that I can't see. Right. So that's combining fear cues that can really help deepen the extinction. Cause if I can face all three of those fears at once, dude, I can fix, you know, I can handle anything. The, the thing is though, we got to make sure that those fear cues all lead to the same outcome. So I'm scared that I'm going to die maybe for example. But if I think that the dark is, <clears throat> I don't know, I'm going to go crazy and the dog is, I'm going to get my face ripped off and the snake, I'm scared I'm going to lose a limb. So there's three different outcomes. Then it's not going to be very effective. We want to make sure that if we combine some of those fear cues, it has the same sort of uh, outcome that's going to deepen the extinction. Occasionally reinforcing that extinction is really important because we want our brain is all about rewards. So we want to make sure that we're reinforcing that intermittently and we're incorporating retrieval cues. So, I mean, there's lots to think about. I am going to leave it there for today because there is so much to go into. I do go into even more detail about making the resistant to anxiety through fear extinction and how to set up effective exposure therapy sessions in my anxiety compass mastery training program. So you can definitely check that out. If you want to deep dive into that with me with consultation and, and, you know, based on your kiddos, there's just so much here you know, I do talk high level around exposure therapy in, in future episodes as well in this podcast, but I can't get too much into the nitty gritty because there's so many things we need to be very careful about that. You really do need guided consultation or supervision, unless you're an expert in it already. And you know, all of the things that you need to do for effective exposure therapy, but I just find there's so many easy ways to fall into traps that make it worse. And so that's why, you know, I'm, I'm giving you as much as I can, but making sure I can't stress enough how important it is to make sure you know what you're doing, because we can cause more damage um, than good when we're doing that. So I'll leave it there for today.
have a great day. Help those anxious kiddos be bold and courageous. And I'll see you next week. Thank you.